Well, to begin with this morning, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, we, we are in no doubt that all of Scripture is absolutely sacred. Uh, be, because we're in no doubt that all of Scripture is God-inspired. It's, it's His revealed Word for us. It's His revealed Word to us. However, while all of Scripture is equally sacred, there is something uniquely astounding in this statement that we have for our consideration this morning. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, Carson, he makes the comment that the mere formulation, so the mere statement of verse 14, scarcely does justice to this, to this most staggering of assertions. So, so what's said here in mere words is so extraordinary, it's impossible to do justice, in a sense, to the magnificence of what we're being told. God the Son taking humanity to Himself and entering into our world. And, and I start with that to say that I had a few different approaches in mind for an introduction to this passage today, but when it came right down to it, it just seemed inappropriate to try to start off with any kind of illustration, just because what's here is so profoundly uh, hallowed, it's so profoundly special, uh, the Word became flesh. As, as I tried to write an introduction, it just seemed sacrilegious. So I stopped. So I didn't. So, so the introduction for today's study is that what's here is, is such a reverentially deep and awe-inspiring truth. Nothing really seemed fit uh, by way of introduction except to say, let's jump into what John tells us and let's, let's seek to understand this well and, and, and think through the implications of what's here. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. Um, we'll, we'll just get right into the text. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, our plan for studying this this morning, then, is going to be to work through an explanation of the text. So we'll think about the incarnation of Christ. We'll focus on that. And then from there, we're going to draw three implications from what we're told here. So that's, that's the plan. In fact, as, as we do that, let's just, let's just pray again, and then we'll, we'll study it. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we meditate on your truth uh, because your word is truth. Uh, so we ask this morning that you would just, just help us consider this well. We know that conceptually this is bigger than our finite minds can, uh, can, can ultimately wrap our thinking around. But the reality of this is not only uh, unable to be ignored, it is absolutely central to what it means to know the Lord Jesus and be saved. And so uh, j- just help us to the end of understanding this and may it leave, in a, leave us in a place of trust and worship. Help us in preaching and in hearing. Uh, for Jesus' sake, amen. So incarnation, incarnation. If you look at verse 14, John, John speaks to us in verse 14 about the word becoming flesh. Uh, that's what incarnation means, the, the enfleshing of something. So in this case, the enfleshing of the word. So, so here we have this term word used again. And the, and the Greek language behind that term is logos. We know that. Uh, we were reminded of how John started this prologue back in verse 1 where he says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Um, and, and we think back to that statement at the start of this chapter and we remember that John's doing things very differently from the other gospel writers and that John's not been introducing us to Christ, first of all, from an earthly perspective. So John isn't starting his introduction to Jesus by recounting a family genealogy like Matthew's gospel does. Or, or John's not starting uh, his introduction to Christ by recounting his humble birth like we have in Luke's gospel. He's not starting his introduction to Christ like by recounting the beginning of his public ministry like Mark does in his gospel. John doesn't start from the same perspective as Matthew, Mark, or Luke. They start from the earth up 
As, as one writer has put it, John starts from heaven down. Right? So John begins his introduction to the person of Jesus Christ with this transcendent and, and outside-the-world description of, of Jesus' uh, eternality and divinity and creative agency, all of these things. Christ was before all beginnings. Christ was in intimate fellowship with God. In fact, Christ is Himself God, and He's the light of life for all humanity, and nothing that's been made was made except through Him. Uh, John starts his introduction to Jesus from outside space and time. And so back in verse 1, to punctuate the significance of this, John is referred to Christ as the Word, as the Logos. And you'll remember from our earlier studies that Logos was a loaded term at the cultural time of John's writing, and that the term Logos was used in the, in the prevalent Greek philosophical thought of the day to reference the logical force that holds the world together. So, so Logos was, was thought to be the, the spark of universal reason and humanity that must be maintained. As, as the explanations would go, Logos was the, was the sustaining and life-giving principle that provides assistance maybe to the divine being or to the divine beings as they created the world, as they maintained the world, as these kinds of things. Logos existed in this way in, in Greek philosophy, which was pervasive in the, in the world, known world during that time. Uh, but, but of course, John is telling us that the sustaining and life-giving and creating principle in the universe is not a philosophical concept. It's a person. Right? It's, it's the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Right? The, the central element that we, that we might think holds our world up needs to be re-understood, John is saying, under the sovereign lordship of the Son of God. And not just that, but for John to speak of Christ as the Logos, as the Word, is to remind his readers that, that it's through God's performative Word that his purposes are carried out and his, and his revelation of himself to humanity is accomplished. So, so this Christ isn't just eternal and divine and the one with all creative and sustaining power, but he's the climactic effector and revealer of God and his almighty purposes. He is the Word incarnate. So, 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 so as we saw, John begins this gospel by, by lining out the vastness of the incomprehensible glories and status of God the Son. That, that's where he starts. Christ is from before the existence of all existences. He's the light of life, the, the one who can't be overcome by darkness. It's all amazing truth. And even if we just had that, that alone would be grand enough for a lifetime of contemplation and worship. Right? Just the fact of the supremacy of this transcendent, life-giving, life-sustaining word. But then we get into verse 14 of John's gospel after he's spoken about the, the eternality and divinity and creative agency of Christ. We get to verse 14 of, of John 1 and he makes this statement which, which defies all manner of mere logical expectations up to this point in that we're told this word became flesh. The word became flesh. So, so just as we put this together, as, as we read up to this point in chapter 1, we have been told such transcendent and supreme things about Christ. Already, we, we've long since reached the limitations of our human comprehension. In the beginning, He was already being, right there. That's bigger than our minds can, can, can grasp, right? We, we can't even start to contemplate the reality of existence before all existence. 
but, but in the beginning of all beginnings, the word was there. He's God himself. All these huge truths about his identity here. And then all of a sudden in verse 14, it's as if John plummets us into this free fall from the immeasurable heights above all galaxies into this low, frail, and mortal realm of humanity. Right? The word became flesh. So the choice of the Greek term translated flesh here by John is purposeful, but it's, it's hardly generous. So says one commentator, flesh is a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature. John does not say the word became man or the word took a body. He chooses that form of expression which puts what he wants to say most bluntly. Or another writer puts it this way, flesh is the most vulnerable, the most corruptible, the most easily destructible part of the human body. In a word, the most impermanent. The Logos is eternal. They are literally poles apart. The Word became flesh. As we read through the Scriptures, what we see is that this term translated flesh is used to describe humanity in all our frailty and mortality. Isn't that the prophet Isaiah? All flesh is like what? Granite rock? Right? All flesh is like mountains that will never be moved? No, all flesh is like what? Grass that withers. The psalmist says the same thing, Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail. Right? This term flesh, this is a word that describes humanity, but not just humanity in broad terms. No, it describes humanity and the frailty and mortality of our condition. And so the statement in John 1, it comes to us, and it's almost more than we can put together. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that's been created, and the word became flesh. John's just told us that the God who is the eternal, personal, potent cause of all being, the one who stands behind and before and above all things, humbled himself and came all the way down. It's the incarnation. It's the infleshing of God. God took humanity to himself. Not at the expense of his divinity. Jesus remained fully and completely God. This is, this is a case of subtraction by addition. Right? Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians 2? Though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. It's subtraction by addition. So Augustine said, man was added to him, God not lost to him. The eternal God took humanity to himself. He, Jesus didn't, didn't change into humanity from divinity. It's not a matter of conversion but instead, while retaining the totality of his divine personhood, God the Son became human. God with us. And this is punctuated by John's statement, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're going to be thinking a little bit more about this next week, which is what I thought we would be doing today when I put that, uh, that call to worship in about, about Moses up on the mountain of Sinai and that, that interaction he has with God there. We're going to bring all that in more next week. But, but just that word translated dwelt, as you may know, is the verb tented or tabernacled in Greek. So John chooses a word here that points back to God coming and dwelling with his people during the events of the Exodus, where we read about how the glory of the Lord would be present with the people in the tabernacle, in the tent. And, and while there was a sectioned off portion of that tent, the Holy of Holies, that, that set up a barrier to the true presence of God, the great mark of God's kindness was that while his people, sinful though they may be, while they were wandering in the desert, God was present with them to guide them to the promised land of rest. His presence was in the tabernacle. 
So you could read Exodus 25, Exodus 40 for homework and, and think more about that. But here, John takes up that tabernacle language of God's presence. And of course, it's all the more glorious in that in the coming of Christ, God is not present with his people in a tent mediated by, by spatial restrictions and, and priesthood statutes and, and a cloud of glory. No, in Christ, God has come in the flesh. He's tabernacled with us in our human existence. And again, we'll talk more about this Exodus connection next week, but, but we can see what John is driving at here. That the God who said he would be with his people has come, not manifesting his presence in a glory cloud come down on a tent where separation from humanity is still required, but he's come in total identification with us as humanity. He's tented among us, which is an extraordinary truth. And it's a central truth that we must hold firmly in our hearts as Christian believers. The incarnation. John will talk about this later in his letters. Central to truly believing in Christ is believing that he came in the flesh. God the Son came while remaining fully God. He took humanity to himself. Jesus the God-man. So, so just to help us meditate on this reality, which we can't really, we, we can't get past this without just soaking in it a little bit. So, so, so let me read you three statements that seek to give words to what's happening here. All right. The, the first is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's a little thicker in terms of a summary of what we're talking about. The second statement I'll give you is from Sinclair Ferguson. It's a little more pastoral. And the third is from Dorothy Sayers and just sums it all up. Okay. So the first Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a mouthful, it's a mindful, right? But, but we need to hear this truth confessionally put. This, this is right down the line, what do Christians believe about Jesus coming in the flesh, about God the Son coming in the flesh? Here we go. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? I told you it's a mouthful, but it's a central mouthful. We have to, we have, to have that in our minds. Now, let's hear what Sinclair Ferguson says. This is a little easier. He says, here's the mystery of deity incarnate. The wonder of it expands our minds and stretches our spirits. The Word, who was face to face with God in the glory of eternity, came to be face to face with us in this world. Infinite and finite, eternal and temporal, word made flesh. So Dorothy Sayers, in her writing, she says, we may call this doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? So, so from the heights of heaven to the depths of the darkness of the created order that, that didn't at first embrace Christ, but instead would ultimately crucify him, the word became flesh. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. So the poet Coswell 
It says, Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Okay. Thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. Okay. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's, it's, out, it's, it's astounding, the incarnation. Okay. So now, uh, let's work out some implications here. Of, of course, there are so, so many. And, and we actually look into next week and what John will say about all of this in the, in the coming verses for much of the truth that we need, not, not least of all considering the superlative love that is represented in this. We will take time with that, uh, especially as we get into what, what's coming there, grace upon grace, grace in place of grace, all that John will say there. But just here, what I want to do is take note of three things about what the incarnation means for us. And I'm actually going to give you three statements, and I'll put them in the negative it's just how it worked out, um, though, of course, this is gloriously positive, but the statements will be in the negative, okay? The first is this. The incarnation means that the Christian faith is not primarily theoretical, okay? The incarnation means that the Christian faith is not primarily theoretical. Um, Christianity is a faith that's centered on the enfleshed personhood of God the Son. It's centered on a flesh and blood person. Uh, so the divine one who grew in wisdom and stature, as Luke tells us, he was a 12-year-old boy. He knew what it was to work with Joseph as a carpenter. He knew hunger and thirst. There's tangibility that we need to consider here. Right? The incarnation makes it clear that Christianity does not center on a thought or philosophy or system. We, we are not first and foremost theory people as Christian believers. We're not religious system people. We're trusting in a person people. Right? And that's important to be clear on. And one of the things that we see happening in certain places within Christianity today is this notion of deconstructing one's faith. Now, this is something going on with a, within a, a particular demographic, usually at least of younger people who grew up in the church, especially this, this deconstructing of the faith. As one person put it, it is a matter of dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs that you, that you grew up with. And while there needs to be good room for honest dialogue about struggles like this within the church, we should never shy away from subjects and tensions and, and pressures such as this. It also does give us a wake-up call as to what our center of interest and what our message has really been in the church. Uh, listening to some, some talks or reading some of what's written along these lines, this deconstruction often occurs because the system that the person had been holding to stopped fitting. It stopped working for that person. So politically, maybe the Christian system doesn't fit for me anymore. You hear language like this. Or in terms of sexuality, the Christian system doesn't fit for me. right? Or concerning notions of justice. Or in terms of the concept of God's judgment, that system just doesn't work. right? Or sometimes people within Christianity, other believers, had wronged the person. And so the system seemed corrupted by practices that contradicted beliefs. The saints were broken. And then so it's time to take things apart, reevaluate, reconsider, deconstruct. And while all these things are genuine and legitimate concerns, what's so often reflected is that these people who have, who have even been around the church for a while, they've fallen into patterns of theorizing around belief structure. Right? Christianity can start to exist for us as an almost abstract theory, as a mere system that can be picked apart and dissected rather than a faith that is centered on the person of God come down to us. Right? And when abstraction and theorization occupy a primary place, then the eroding of belief begins. Right? 
But we're not systems people as Christians, right? We're not theory people as Christians. The incarnation makes it very clear that the center of our faith is not a notion to be comprehended, but God come in the flesh and blood personhood of the Lord Jesus Christ as promised to live a perfect life, to die in our place, rise again to eternal life, ascend to the Father, and return to bring judgment on those who reject him and resurrection life to all who will receive him. That this, is, this isn't a thought experiment. This is a call to trust a person. So let me just give you an example of this by setting two, two types of statements in contrast. Okay, there's, I'm going to give you two sets of statements. Um, the, the first two sets, two statements, they come from philosophers. The first is Nietzsche, the second is Kant. Let me, let me read these for you. Nietzsche said this. The concept of the Son of Man, he's referring to Jesus, is not some concrete person belonging to history, but a psychological symbol. And then he goes on to say, the kingdom of God is not something that you wait for. It does not have a yesterday or a day after tomorrow. It will not arrive in a thousand years. It is an experience of the heart. It is everywhere and it is nowhere. Okay. You hear the theorizing and that the abstraction, the depersonalization there. Of course, Nietzsche was far from Christ. Right? And then Kant, he, he makes the statement, Christ is the embodiment of an abstract idea. The embodiment of an abstract idea. There, there are the philosophers, right? Now, now listen to these two statements. One is Calvin, one is Bovink. Right? Calvin says this, Christ is not good and just, but goodness and justice. You hear that? Did you see how he located those attributes in Christ's personhood? He's not just concerned with what Christ acts like as, as Jesus is, is say, uh, walking along the right rails for a system, but he's, he's concerned with what Christ is, with who Christ is. This is person-centric, person-located faith. Christ is not good and just, but goodness and justice. He's righteousness embodied. Bovink says this, Christ is not the founder of Christianity, nor the first confessor of Christianity, nor the first Christian. He is Christianity itself in its preparation, fulfillment, and consummation. So, so you see, we have to be careful not to let Christianity slide into a place of being an abstract theory for living. And then, when that theory stops working as we judge things to be, Christianity stops working and needs to be taken apart. No, that can't be. But what John does for us here is he speaks to us about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. What John does here is he locates Christianity in personhood. Right? It's not dependent upon who you are or who I am. It's not dependent upon my understanding of justice or my felt expression of sexuality. It's not a matter of theory that fits or doesn't fit my ideas of justice or judgment. It is a matter of a person who will either be accepted and yield to as king or ultimately rejected to the detriment of our own eternal condition. Christianity is tangibly located in the God-man Jesus. So, so we must come to terms with the God-man Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, physically rose again and ascended to the Father who will bodily return and to whom every knee will bow and confess His Lordship on the final day. Right? So the incarnation drives us to consider the tangibility of the Christian faith. It's not first a series of beliefs, it is a person for us to believe in which is exactly the whole point of John's gospel, isn't it? 
John does not say by the time he gets to the end of his book, I write this so that you can know the stuff that Jesus did and said and consider how amazing it was and believe the words he spoke. It's not what John says his purpose is. What is John's purpose? I have written this so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have life in his name. John is person-centered on the Lord Jesus. Have life in his name. So, so the incarnation means that the Christian faith is not primarily theoretical. Rather, it is soundly located in the personal reality of the incarnate Lord Jesus. You don't accept or reject tenets of the Christian faith. You accept or reject the person of Jesus Christ. Right? The incarnation means that the Christian faith is not primarily theoretical. So that's first. Secondly, the incarnation means that history is not hopelessly aimless. Incarnation means that history is not hopelessly aimless. The word became flesh. So, so there is a point in time in the history of the created cosmos that the Son of God was not born of a woman yet. Right? And then the time came for him to be born of a woman. There's a historical moment. And in the fact of that historical moment, we're able to locate what it means that history is happening, not hopelessly by chance, but according to God's purposes. Right? It's, it's possible for us to go through life, even with some awareness of Christian hope, it's possible for us to go through life with a genuine sense of hopelessness as we look around at what's happening. Things just keep going on in a way that brings so much sorrow to us. Who can read the news? One week can't go by without us weeping as we read the news. Listen to this description of one that one writer provides of, of the apparent meaninglessness of history. He says this. Suffering, injustice, and death come and go. But the sun just keeps on burning and the waves just keep on lapping. The universe does not shed a tear. The universe does not even not care. It just is. And we dance to its music. So it's hopeless sounding, isn't it? The brokenness is all around us, the pain, and the sun keeps on shining and the waves keep on lapping and the universe doesn't care and we dance to the music. It's hopeless. History just goes and goes around and around. What the incarnation of Christ makes clear to us is that this view of history is absolutely false. History is not cyclically meaningless. History is moving forward to a climax and the incarnation of Christ proves it. In the very beginning, humanity being given the blessing of Eden sinned against God. While death came as judgment, God also made the promise that through the son of a woman, the world will be saved. Promises are made by God to Adam and Eve, by God to Abraham, by God to Israel, by God to David. Promises made. The son will be born who will bring life. And those promises were kept in time. So much so that as time went by, Paul puts it as plainly as possible in Galatians, in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, when it got to the right point in the history of God's world, right, God sent forth His Son born of a woman. Right? In the incarnation, that promise was kept at just the right time in history. Jesus came, He lived perfectly, He died on the cross to pay the debt of sin for all who will come to Him in faith, and He rose again ascending to the Father, promising to return for the climactic finality of all history uh, on, that, on that final day when He brings about new creation promises. So, so the incarnation proves history is not pointless, but instead it is the vehicle of time through which God is affecting his perfectly ordered, redemptive, and restorative plan. It's not our perfectly understood plan, but it is God's perfectly ordered 
uh, redemptive, restorative plan. History isn't hopelessly spinning. History is moving according to his divine prerogative centered on the glory of Jesus. So the Christian thinker, Jacques Alul, I think is how you say his last name, he describes history not as a watch, he says. We need to not think about history as a watch, but as a compass. Right, with the watch, he says, we're interested in all the internal parts. All the, all, of course, he's thinking about an old watch, isn't he? He's not thinking about a new watch. But all, and an old watch, all the internal parts, the gears that turn and make it go, all of these kinds of things. It's the parts themselves that have our total attention. But with the compass, we're concerned singularly with the magnetic directional pull. We're oriented north in our movement. So that's how we're to understand history, he says. Not merely fixated on, on the moving parts of time, but we're fixed on the due north of history. And he says, Christ is that north. We're going in a direction. So the incarnation means that history is not hopelessly aimless. Suffering, injustice, and death come and go, but the sun keeps on burning. The waves just keep on lapping. The universe doesn't shed a tear. The universe doesn't even not care. It just is, and we dance to its music. No, we say to that. No, no. Things go on, but they don't go on in hopeless cycles. They go on with Christ-centered, due north purpose. Right? And his incarnation proves that he is the one who comes at the appointed time. And in his first coming, we are reminded of the fact that the one who's come will come again and bring things to their climactic, hope-filled end for those who believe. So the incarnation means that history is not hopelessly aimless. That's second. Finally then, third, the incarnation means that Christ is not experientially distant. Christ is not experientially distant. And we've, we've mentioned this, but, but we can do so in a bit more detail. So, so Jesus took humanity to himself. And remember, John doesn't say he became man. He says he took flesh to himself. He uses language there that indicates the frailty of our, of our humanity. Jesus there, being both fully God and fully man, he can identify with us in our human struggle. And, and, and we, know what it, we know what it is to feel at times uh, like, like grass that withers under the various pressures and concerns of life. We know what it is to be withering humanity. Sometimes that's more pronounced in our life than others, but we, we can very much identify with that. We can all do identify with that in some measure of, uh, or another. And as we experience those kinds of moments of, of, of weakness, moments of frailty, moments of recognizing uh, that, there, that there's distinctive pain in our life that can be so damaging, as we experience that, we can know this, that the Son of God left the eternal realms of endless glory and He entered into the human experience entirely. Right? So, so Jesus knew exhaustion so much that He could fall asleep on a boat in a storm. Jesus entered the ex human experience of hunger. He entered the human experience of grieving at the tomb of a close friend. He entered into the human experience of being betrayed by those who had promised loyalty to him. He entered into the human experience of being rejected by the town in which he grew up. He entered into the human experience of the excruciating physical pain and public humiliation of death on a Roman cross. It, it may just be that the various pains are an all too familiar personal companion for you. And to that experience, Jesus responds and he says, I can identify with you in that agony. The incarnation means that Christ is not experientially distant. The person who is the center of our faith is not experientially distant from the struggle. You weep, I know weeping, he says. 
You're lonely. I know loneliness, he says. You feel used by those who should have loved you. Jesus says, I know what it is to be used by those who should have loved you. And from his place of knowing the frailty of our human existence, he says to us, come to me, call out to me, and find the one who can not only identify with your pain, but find the one who can bring you hope that lasts beyond the pain of this life into a renewed reality of heavenly future. Christ is the one who experientially identifies with what it means to be human as he gives us hope. So, so we put these things together, and we could say so many more, couldn't we? But the incarnation means that our faith is not primarily theoretical. That's first. It's centered on a person. The incarnation means that history is not hopelessly aimless, Time is moving forward until the final day when Christ will come again, make all things new. The one who came is the one who will come. And the incarnation means that Christ is not experientially distant, but instead he knows the pain and he came to rescue us. And so with all that in our minds, we'll just end this morning with this poem from Lawrence Houseman. It's short, but it goes like this. Light looked down and beheld darkness. There will I go, said light. Peace looked down and beheld war. There will I go, said peace. Love looked down and beheld hatred. There will I go, said love. So came light and shone. So came peace and gave rest. So came love and brought life. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that we would be renewed in our hope and the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, look for no, we look for no system. We look for no theories. We only look to the person, uh, the one who came according to your revealed purposes and promises, the one who will come again according to your revealed purposes and promises, and the one who accomplished what is necessary to reconcile us from a place of death to a place of life forever. How would we place our trust in him, renew us in our trust in him this morning. We ask this for the sake, ultimately, of his eternal glory. We ask this. Amen.